Hear the king as he speaks to us this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now and forever be blessed in our lives and in all that we do, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles. Today we're starting a, a, a study of First Timothy, the, Paul's first letter to Timothy. You can find that uh, quickly enough, I hope, in the back of your Bible in the New Testament. If you flip through a little bit, if you get to Hebrews, you've gone a little too far uh, past the Gospels, you will run into 1 Timothy. We are going to be studying 1 Timothy uh, for a number of reasons and for uh, quite a number of weeks. Uh, the subtitle or the thought process in which we're orienting things around a little bit is that 1 Timothy is a word of truth and godliness for Hebron Church. A word of truth and godliness for Hebron Church. Uh, just going backwards a little bit, I include the For Hebron Church in there uh, specifically to draw attention to the fact that when the word, when, when God speaks to us in his word, he speaks to us today as he has spoken through the generations. It's a understanding of the scriptures that dates all the way back and it goes all the way to the very foundation of the church and really before that, a recognition that when God speaks, he speaks not just to the community in which he is talking, but that he speaks to all peoples and specifically, I think he speaks to us here today as well. And so when we look at the book of First Timothy, I think in a very real concrete way, we can think to ourselves that God is speaking to us, Hebron Church. So a word of truth and godliness to Hebron Church. It's a word of godliness because if you read the book of First Timothy, and I encourage you to do so, I will be encouraging you to do so, as you read through this or as we work our way through it together, you'll see that we touch on tremendous issues. Uh, the idea of the priority of prayer, what the order of worship should look like and how worship should be orderly, what it means to come together as God's people in worship, how we interact with the secular authorities, what does it mean for us to be men and women who engage in the world as a whole in our society, how do we have those relationships that link us, that tie us to other people. All of these issues are covered in the book of 1 Timothy, which we're going to work our way through. And as we do, we're going to see this consistent thread that unites all of these issues. And they are that as we interact with worship, as we interact with the world, as we interact with our employers, as we look at what good leadership looks like, all of these kind of things, there is going to be a consistent theme, and that is that we do all of those things as God's people, as God's representatives, as God's children. And as such, there is this theme of godliness that runs through the book of 1 Timothy that we are going to be focusing on, cycling back on over and over again. There is also a word of truth and godliness. One of the most powerful ideas in the book of 1 Timothy is this constant assertion by Paul that God's people should guard the truth, that God's people should know the truth, that God's people should promote the truth. 
There is a real truth focus in the book of 1 Timothy. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to think that that's the immediate thing that prompted Paul to write this letter, and we'll see this in the weeks coming, that the immediate issue that prompts Paul to write this letter is that he is concerned for the lack of truth assertions, truth-telling by God's people. Now, in today's society, as you know, it is an arrogant thing to talk as though you have a corner on the truth, to assert a truthfulness like Paul is going to here and what we are going to have to as we look at 1 Timothy. You're arrogant, you're out of touch, you're ignorant of the diversity of our society, all of those kind of things. Somehow we are gonna have to come face to face with the fact that the Word of God asserts a truthfulness and we have some kind of a responsibility to assert that as his people. We're gonna have to look at all of those things as we look at a word of truth and godliness for Hebron Church as we study 1 Timothy. Again, 1 Timothy is towards the back end of your Bible. If you flip there, you will see that the passage that I read was the first two verses, and it's the way in which we're going to start looking at 1 Timothy by examining the beginning two verses, not as an introduction, but for what I think they tend to do. Um, the introduction to a letter, 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, and in writing a letter, they follow a certain format. If we write a letter today, we start it with Dear Joe, and we end it with Sincerely Yours, or something like that at the end. There's a format, there's a pattern to these letters, and Paul basically follows that pattern with some important tweaks and nuances. And a lot of the tweaks that Paul gives in this letter writing format comes right here in the first two verses. And I think they're there for a particular reason. They are setting the tone for us. My guess is that all of you have had that experience or you know or you can easily imagine it of how much your attitude going into an experience shapes the way in which you experience the event. If you have a bad attitude and you come into some kind of an interaction with somebody and you're just convinced that everybody is gonna, you know, this is just gonna be a terrible experience, blah, 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 no matter how good it is, you're gonna have a terrible experience. And of course, we all know those people, the opposite end of the spectrum, God love them. You know, they're so excited, they're so passionate about whatever they're getting into that, you know, they walk into the horse manure and they're all excited about it. You know, everything is just glorious because that's the attitude in which they come to look at this. What is the attitude with which we need to come to the book of 1 Timothy? I believe that Paul sets that out. The first two verses here help set the tone for us. It's an encouragement. Hey, as you continue to read on, here's the attitude that I want you to have. There's a reason for this. Some of you who know 1 Timothy will know some of the material that we're getting into. I, as I was looking at this, as I was planning this out, I was thinking, okay, wow, that's gonna be a hard week to preach. That's gonna be a tough passage to preach. That's going to be a hard passage. Why did I pick this book? Uh, you know, wh why did we, how did we come here with this passage? Because there's going to be over and over again, there are going to be times where your attitude as you hear these words, as you read these words, are going to be challenged. Paul, I think, here sets the tone for us really well 
by saying, look, here is how I want you to hear these words. When we touch on some issues, you are going to, by by God's creation, you are going to challenge, you're going to question, you're going to say, hey, how does this work? By sin, there's going to be that push that is going to want you to rebel against the word of God. And by just curiosity, we're going to want to understand how it is that some of the things that Paul asserts are true make sense in our culture and in our society. And consistently as we go back to those events and talk about those things, I'm going to be encouraging you to think about the very opening two verses of this letter because they set a tone for us. They say, here's how I want you to hear this letter. Begins right off the bat in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is standard letter writing technique, by the way. Have you ever gotten a letter in the mail? It's not, you don't recognize the return address. What's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is you read the opening line, you know, dear Henry. Okay, yes, this is to me. And then what do you do? I do it, at least. You flip on the back to see what? Down at the bottom, who wrote this? Okay, I got to know who wrote, I want to, I'm more interested in who wrote it before I even read what they wrote. Well, the ancient Near East had a better system than what we do. They didn't hide the author until the very end. You started right out with it. You started by saying, look, your letter, you write a letter, it's, you don't tell you who it's addressed to, you say who's sending it. That's the first thing off the bat. So the first thing out of Paul's mouth here is the articulation, hey, I am sending this letter. But he states it not just like, hey, this is from Paul, which would be the normal phrasing. Normally it would be Henry to Joe greetings. That's the normal phrase. That's the normal standard format for a letter. Here we have basically that format with it tweaked a little bit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now the first thing he does is he identifies himself as an apostle. If you're familiar with the New Testament writings, you will know that Paul does this a lot. He asserts his authority as an apostle. He talks about that, and some of you will recognize the idea and the working of an apostle. An apostle is somebody that has a particular role, a particular function, somebody who's been commissioned specifically by Jesus to carry the gospel into this world, uh, the 12 disciples or 11 disciples, they were certainly part of the apostles, and then Paul is also associated with that. That's kind of what an apostle means. Now, some of you also know that the word apostle actually means the sent ones. When we talk about, when Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he is saying, hey, I am a sent one. I am one of the ones who has been sent. Now, it would be easy for us to associate what Paul is doing here is identifying his authority here by saying, look, I have been sent, and this is why you need to listen to me. But Paul doesn't just do that. He moves on. As a matter of fact, he begins by saying he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to look at that prepositional phrase for a second, of Christ Jesus. Uh, He's the sent one of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, the, the meaning and the context can carry a lot of different emphasis, and I think that most of them are associated in here. Paul is sent by Christ Jesus. Paul is sent for Christ Jesus. Paul is sent with Christ Jesus. Paul is sent about 
Christ Jesus. I think every one of those is built into this idea when Paul stands forward and says, hey, Paul, I am an apostle. He's not stressing that he's an apostle and therefore listen to him. He's stressing, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. Therefore, listen to me. So right off the bat, what Paul does here at the beginning of this letter, as he's about to go into a lot of really important issues for us to learn, is that he stresses that what is about to come for us comes not from Paul itself, but as Paul, as a representative, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul's focus is upon Christ. Paul's letter is about Christ. Our deliberations, our thinking about this letter is going to be about Christ. When we are talking about issues that are sure to engender questions and are going to bring up confusion and bring up maybe even so much as a rejection, we need to recognize that Paul's interest is about Christ Jesus. And so the attitude, how do we hear this word? The first idea here in verse one is that we need to hear this word as part of God's own authority. This is part of the Lord's authority, and that's the way in which we approach this letter. And it's set up right at the beginning where Paul says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. He goes on then and says, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Now again, if you're really familiar with the scriptures, you will recognize that Paul very often says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, by the will of God or by the will of the Father. Somehow identifying that Paul himself has been set apart, has been commissioned by God according to God's desire or according to God's will. This is what God wants. This is God's desire for me and therefore I fulfill it by being an apostle. That's good, that's great. Paul normally stresses that. This is the only spot in the scriptures where he says it's not just because of God's will, it is by God's command. And so here you get the sense that Paul is under orders. Paul is being, he, he's, uh, being directed, he's being obedient, not just because God wants this to take place, but because God has ordered it to take place. He is doing so by the command of God. Now, normally, and if you're like me, whenever we think of the command of God, we naturally think of the authority of God and of his sovereignty, and of his power, and in our most humble moments, we all recognize that God has every right in the world to have sovereign command over my life, and if he tells me to do X, Y, or Z, by golly, I'm gonna do X, Y, or Z because he's the big boss up in heaven. And all that is true, and I think all of that is covered in here a little bit. Paul does want you to recognize the majesty, the glory, the, the sovereign authority of our Lord. That's going to be picked up further on in this epistle. It's a crucial part of the way God is understood by Paul himself. But, and again, this can easily slide by us. It is a command of God our Savior. Paul is articulating that he is writing this letter, this letter that comes as a word of truth and godliness for us 
and I hope you understand what I mean, for each one of us individually, God's word comes to us as a command from God our Savior. Now, you really have to be well steeped in the Old Testament to pick this up. But in the Old Testament, that's a popular phrase for God specifically emphasizing not just his sovereign power, but specifically his compassion for his people. When the prophets speak of God demonstrating his love, pouring his heart out upon his people, they, he call, they call him God our Savior. God our Savior is the one who leans into us in our weaknesses, who is well aware of the brokenness of sin and the fact that we are trapped in that and that there is so little that we can do about it and that in our desperation, all we can do is throw ourselves upon God. He becomes God our Savior because of his great compassion and love. And so what you have here is this picture that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command, that's the authority, of the one who desires pure compassion and care for you. That's what's driving this written, this written word of 1 Timothy. What's driving it for each of us is this idea that God sovereignly directs it as an expression of his care and compassion for us. By command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Christ Jesus, our hope. That Paul is directed to do this. But now, how is Christ Jesus our hope? Hope, again, that forward-looking idea that is built upon the confident assurance that God will fulfill that which he has promised. What does God have in store? What is the hope for Paul? What is the hope for Timothy who reads this letter? What's the hope for Hebron Church as we read this letter? It is nothing short of Jesus Christ himself. It is not our salvation, it is not heaven, it is not a good moral life, it is not a, an understanding of the world. All of those things are beautiful benefits that come to us, but our hope is Jesus Christ, where we orient, where we drive our attention, where Paul wants us to end every passage of scripture that we look at is in the hope of Jesus Christ. How is it that we are supposed to approach this text? How are we supposed to hear 1 Timothy? I believe that we are supposed to hear it with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Then in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, Paul says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. And again, after you identify who sends the letter, then you want to say who's supposed to receive the letter. And in this case, it's to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Uh, we will learn a lot about Timothy as we go through the, over the next months or so, uh, learning about different things that are spoken about Timothy, and we'll touch base on him in a bit. Uh, it is worth noting that often in this letter, not always, but often in this letter, Paul uses the plural form of verbs and nouns in order to speak not just to Timothy, but to a community around Timothy. This is not just to Timothy as an individual, and then he talks about, hey, this is what you all should be doing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is a corporate idea to this letter as a whole. But Paul writes, to Timothy my true child in the faith. Now, if you're not familiar with the biblical story, let me clarify for a second here, that Timothy 
is not biologically related to Paul. Paul is not the biological father for Timothy. As a matter of fact, as we go back and look in Acts chapter 16, you will see that there's every possibility that Timothy would have been in his late teens, maybe even early 20s when they first met, uh, Paul and Timothy. And yet he calls him my true child in the faith, my true son. Uh, some of you guys uh, know what it's like for a child to grow up to begin to take on the characteristics more and more of their parents, and that's always a fun thing for parents to do and, and for others to look in on family members and say, boy, doesn't the son really act like the father, et cetera. I only get to see my brother about uh, two times a year, uh, and bo both times when we get together, I am continually shocked at how much like my father he is becoming. He, he starts taking on the attitudes of my dad. He's taking on a thought process. He even looks like my dad, all these kind of things. He's like a mini-me uh, as far as dad, my father is concerned. And I always comment on that, and I always make jokes about that. And Ted, of course, always jokes and comments. My brother always jokes and comments that I look just like my dad, that I act just like my dad. You know, both of us are taking on all the characteristics, the traits of our father. It's one of the things that just kind of happens across the board. And you can see that something like that is in Paul's mind here as he says, hey, Timothy is my true son. He is my true child in the faith. Now, the temptation is to sit and think that this is because after doing ministry for decades, Paul here has found somebody who acts like Paul, or who thinks like Paul, or who looks like Paul. And so Paul says, hey, this is my true son because he takes on all of my characteristics and my traits. But that's not at all what he is saying. My true son in the faith, what is central to Paul's association with Timothy is that Timothy has the, the humility of a son when it comes to the faith, that Timothy is able to hear from Paul in a position of humility about and around the faith. That's what's essential in his life. And so it is for us as we go through this letter. There, again, this, our humble approach to this text, our humble approach in faith to this text is not going to mean that we're not going to question what we run into. It's not going to cause, it's going to enable us though to wonder and to ask and to challenge, but ultimately we do that as a position of true children in the faith. Those who are able to, in the end of the game, be humble in our expression of our confidence and dependence upon God himself. So how do we hear this letter? I think we hear it, first and foremost, as though it is from God's authority. Secondly, we hear it in humble faith. That's how we are supposed to hear this letter. And then finally, at the end of verse 2, we hear it as those who are secure in our salvation. We hear this letter. I need you to hear this letter as those who are secure in your salvation. I think that's Paul's point here when he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, after saying this is from Henry to Joe, uh, the normal standard would be me to say in the Greek would be say, greetings. Now, the word greetings 
and the word grace are different only by one, one letter. And so what Paul does here is he tweaks the standard greeting a little bit by not saying, Timothy, greetings to you, but rather he tweaks it a bit by saying grace to you. Now, if you've read lots of Paul's letters, you know that Paul, most of the time, says grace and peace to you. And that highlights grace, a Greek word and Greek idea, and peace, a Hebrew word and Hebrew idea that links something that Paul is always interested in doing, assuring us that the gospel message is for everybody. It's for those who think like Greeks and those who think like Hebrews. It's for everyone. And so he most often says, in all the letters except for the two that he sends to Timothy, he always says, grace and peace to you. Here he tweaks that a bit. Grace, mercy, and peace to you. And I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, as you approach this letter, as you listen to this letter, here is the, here's the atmosphere that I want you to live in. Here's the, here's the waters that you are going to swim in. Here is the world in which you are already a part of. Grace. God's kindness to the undeserving. Who are the undeserving? It is every one of us. There's a guy out there going, me, 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 me. Yeah, it is all of us. The undeserving are sitting right here in this room. God's kindness, not his little bit of kindness. When the scriptures talk about the kindness of God, they talk about this overflowing, this magnanimous, crushing picture of God's kindness. So when Paul says grace to you, he's saying what you are to understand as you read this letter is grace, God's kindness, overwhelming kindness to the undeserving. Mercy, God's pity to the wretched. When I ask who are the wretched, everybody can go like this. We are the wretched. I use that phrase every once in a while in reference to myself. And people come up to me and say, wow, you must be really bad. And I go, yes, and so are you. Yes, we are the wretched. And God here has pity. And again, it's not just, it's not a little bit of pity. This is God's overflowing compassion. And when we read this letter and we get to spots that just strike us wrong, that, we, that there's this natural position that we want to oppose what we're hearing or not embrace it or water it down or try to say, nah, I don't like that idea. We swim in a world where it is filled with grace and God's pity and compassion for us. God's peace. God's peace, his reconciliation with his enemies. We have been reconciled to our Lord. Will we think differently than him? Possibly. Will we get frustrated the way he thinks? Possibly. But we live in a world where God's grace, 
God's mercy, God's peace has already enveloped us as his people. When we hear this letter, we hear it as the authority of the Lord. But we hear it as the authority of the Lord and we receive it in childlike faith. And when we have trouble, we are secure in the salvation that is already ours and God's grace, mercy, and peace. I checked three different times. I read through 1 Timothy, and it will take you 12 minutes. Now, if it takes you longer than 12 minutes, I feel good about myself. That means I'm a fast reader. No, it'll take you 12 minutes. I beg you, find 12 minutes. Read 1 Timothy, and as you do, realize that you are reading the words of the authority of our God, that you are a child of faith, and that your salvation is secure by God's grace, mercy, and peace, now and forever. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for the word that you give to us in the scriptures, the word that comes from your very mouth, the word that sets the pattern for our life and our world, the word that very often we do not fully embrace or understand. Worse, Lord, the word that sometimes we understand, but we do not fully embrace. Lord, at every moment, remind us anew of your great kindness to us when we are so undeserving your compassion and pity upon us when we are so wretched, and the fact that through Jesus Christ, we, your enemies, have been reconciled, made not just free, but made your friends. Help us to read this word with that understanding in mind, we pray. In your son's name we ask, amen.